Welcome to North Boston Korean United Methodist Church. Here, we are a family that seeks to love others the way Jesus loves us and raise people up in His love. We are grateful to have you listen in. Regardless of who you are, you are always welcome here. For more information, check out our website at mbkumc.com. To a camera. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. It's really great to see everyone here. We've got a full house. Y'all can look around. Can y'all look around at each other? Say hello. Say hello. Some of y'all you've seen last week. Some of y'all you have never seen before. We've got people visiting. We've got people here. You know, just say hello. Look around. This is your community. I don't know if y'all knew. This is your community now. This is what it's look this is what it looks like post pandemic. That is the blessing that we get to have. Our community has grown in the time of our pandemic and um yeah, it's been a really lonely time of worshiping um over screen. So it's really great to see everybody here. Um I would have more to say and I'm so sorry that the Lord does not take any rest, but we're just going to jump right in because there are no other words. If you guys didn't know, we've been going through a sermon series on Jonah, Esther, and now we are going through Daniel. We are in the book of Daniel right now. If y'all can open up your Bible with me to Daniel chapter 4. <laughs> uh, Daniel chapter 4. Daniel is after the book of Ezekiel and before the book of Hosea, it's like in the latter part of the Old Testament for those of you guys who are having a hard time, Daniel chapter four. Uh, normally I would read through the whole thing, but I'm going to read Daniel chapter four, verses 34 to 37. Um, and we'll go into this. So y'all, obviously I'm not reading the whole thing, so you guys can skim with your eyes as I'm preaching, but Daniel chapter four, I'm reading from the ESV. I actually recommend y'all read from the NIV, the NRSV, all of those things are more than acceptable translations. I will be reading from the ESV. For those of us who have not been in church for a while, we say, we use a liturgical thing to honor God's word. Um, and we're going to stand in a minute, but I'll say this is the word, this is the word of the Lord. I'll read and I'll say this is the word of the Lord again and y'all can say with me, thanks be to God, okay? Um, so this is God's holy and perfect word. Can we all rise for God's word? This is the word of the Lord. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me. And for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Will we remain standing as I pray? How wonderful is it that your community gets to gather together? We have been distracted this quarantine. We have been dismayed. Things have come and gone. And Jesus, it has been hard. It has been hard. Abba, you have helped us. You have helped us make it through this season. And God, we just want to give you glory. We just want to give you glory.
Abba, would you hide me behind your cross that only your word is magnified? We take this moment, God, to honor you, to worship you, to praise your name, to bless your name, Jesus. Jesus, it is you. You are the one that we worship. You are worth it. You are not just a construct of our minds. You are a real person living in the flesh. Jesus, you could walk into this very room if you wanted to. You walked this earth and you went to be with the Lord. And now you are seated at the right hand of God, there to judge the living and the dead. Abba, we worship you. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, we worship you. We praise your name. Be magnified in us. We love you. We give you glory. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So we're going to be continuing through our sermon series on Daniel. Daniel has been a lot. This chapter is a lot. I wish I had something fluffier and kinder. So I just want to say it right now, just in case, just in case it gets a little, you know, crazy up in here. I'm just going to remind you, this is your weekly reminder that Jesus loves you, that he died on the cross for your sins, and that there's grace over your life. And so we're going to go into the book of Daniel. So this book is obviously written as a series of stories. The book of Daniel was written, this is post-Israel falling. Israel is in exile right now. And Nebuchadnezzar, we're going to call him Neb. Neb, he is the king of this empire that includes Babylon. All right, it's like vast. We're talking like the Middle East, or that's not the right terminology, but uh, Western Asia, all into like the latter part, the part, part, southern parts of Southern Europe, past and across the Mediterranean, uh, the Mesopotamian, Mesopotamian. Like all across, it's a huge empire, and Israel is one of the people that have fallen. So Israel, over hundreds of years, they couldn't get it together, and they've fallen. And so that's what the book of Daniel has been like, right? And we've been seeing different stories of how to stay Christian in a godless world. Now we are going to hear, this chapter is very interesting because this chapter is one of the only chapters of this book that is written in first person for most of it until Daniel is speaking. So this chapter in particular, uncharacteristically, is written in, in the words of King Neb, not written in the perspective of the Israelites, not written in the perspective of the church, but written in the perspective of King Nebuchadnezzar. So it's written in a testimonial way. And these chapters, this chapter in particular, actually start with King Nebuchadnezzar praising the name of God for the first three verses before and the last three verses at the end. That's what we read. And it's written in a testimonial way with, the, with an emphasis on the wonder of what God did for the king. And it's written in the same format as Babylonian royal encryptions. So I'm just going to try to explain this to you like Neb is my, my neighbor. And I hope y'all can keep and track with me here. All right. So basically, there's this king. He's very powerful. He relies on himself. He likes what he's done, all right? But he has a lot of anxiety. Who can relate? I can relate. And he has a lot of anxiety, and he gets anxiety about what? He gets anxiety about dreams. This man has some crazy dreams, okay? And so he dreams. This is not the first time he's dreamed. The last time he dreamed, he almost killed off all his wise men. And Daniel had to pray. But this time he dreams, and he's thrown into more doubt and fear. And so last time, if y'all remember, last time the wise men said, we can't do it, and Daniel was the only one to be able to do it, and he almost killed everybody off. So this time, he doesn't even go, he doesn't even bother going to them wise men. He goes straight to Daniel. He says, hey, I've had a dream. And this dream is about a tree. It's about a tree in the middle of, an, of, a, of, a, of land, and that tree gives life. It's a life-giving tree. And in the middle of that tree, in, in, the, middle, in the middle of that dream, a, a messenger from heaven orders for the tree to be cut down, for, but for the stump to remain. And it's a dream that is, it is foreboding. And I'm just actually, I'm not going to, let me not butcher the dream itself. I'm just going to read it for y'all. Okay. So this dream, here we are. This dream in verse 13 
Chapter 4, verse 13, I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves, and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze, amid the timber tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him and let seven periods of time pass over him. This sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones to the end that the living may know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets it over the lowliest of men. All right, so that's the dream. It's a weird dream. There's a tree. The tree gets ordered to be cut down. And the tree gets ordered to turn into a beast. Seven times, that means seven years. And so he's weirded out. He has a lot of anxiety and fear. He goes to Daniel. Uh, we see in this chapter here, first and foremost, like when you think of a dream like that, when you think of a tree in the middle of a field and that tree is the tree of life and it gives life to everything in it, what do you think that that tree signifies? Like when you think of a tree of life in the middle of a field, in the middle of a forest, and everything relies on that tree for life, what do you think of? Some of y'all might be like God. Some of y'all might be like money. Some of y'all might be like my family. Some of y'all, like what is your tree of life in the middle of your forest that gives life to everything in it? Nebuchadnezzar thought that that tree was himself. And he thought that the forest was the cosmic world. So he was like, because he is not just a physical king, Babylonian Chaldean religion, we still have some of its star signs, the zodiac, right? That's all Chaldean. Like, you know, I'm a Virgo, like, oh my God, if you're like, your whole personality is based off of these 12 stars in the sky. Um, don't say any more on that. So that that's like based off of Babylonian wisdom, right? And uh, so Nebuchadnezzar really thought that he was spiritual. And so he was like, well, I must be at the center of this spiritual universe. I must be at the center of this land, not just physically, not just geopolitically, but spiritually, I must be at the center. And so that's what he's thinking he is. So he identifies himself with a cosmic tree, almost like a true image of God, a perfect man. A perfect man. And then this watcher orders the dismantling of this tree. And the tree becomes a beast that wanders the earth seven times. It is a freaky dream, right? And then at the end of it, at the very end of that dream, it says that the Most High, this is the reason for why the tree gets turned into a beast, that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets over them the loneliest of men. So he says, Daniel, what the heck is going on here? And Daniel's like, ah, you know why? Because you know how the dream sounds bad? The interpretation is also bad. And so, you know, he has to be the one to tell this king of an entire empire, who is, by the way, a dictator. He does not need fairness. He does not need justice. He does not need democracy. He can do whatever the heck he wants, right? And so this Daniel guy, he's like, well, how do I say this? And he, with the courage that only comes from God, he just interprets this dream and he shows, he actually shows no pleasure to explain it. I wanna make a mental note of this just for one second because Daniel shows no pleasure in sharing this dream to Neb. Now Neb is the sole reason for the fall of Israel. Daniel is a Jew, he has been made sterile, he's been made a eunuch after being brought into the land of Babylon. Daniel has been stripped from his family, his heritage, his everything, but he shows compassion to Nebuchadnezzar here. And I think that there's something to be said about the Christian walk. We all tend to get really bitter. We all tend to have relational problems. You slight me and I don't wanna to talk to you for months on end. There is something to be said about the Christian witness that gets impaired 
by our emotions taking over our values and our virtue. Because the only thing that actually tells us how to be with one another is love one another. That's not because it's easy. God doesn't give you certain guidelines to live your life by because it's easy to. But Jane though, I'm hurt, I get it. People hurt each other. Jane though, I'm bitter, I get it. People get bitter at each other. You know what? You've hurt people just as much as people have hurt you. You've made people bitter just as much as people have made you bitter. The problem with the American church and the witness of the church is that we don't know how to be Christian anymore in the way that we love one another. We don't look different from everybody else in the world. And what sets you apart is love. So let that be a minor challenge. That's not the point of this sermon. So Daniel shows compassion. But he, obviously, because the king is the king, he's ordered him to do something. Also because, you know, God has given him that interpretation. He ain't going to disobey God or Neb, so he interprets it. He says, yes, actually, the tree is you. But it's not over the cosmic world. The forest is actually Babylon. The tree gives life and protects the ecosystem, the balance of Babylon. This tree sustains life for Babylon. So he says, not over everything, all right? Like, you're not spiritually, like, the center of the universe. I know. Oh, my God. Not the center of the universe. You are only the center of Babylon. But this message and this dream is not a dream of protection and provision. Although it is, there are undercurrents of it. This dream is a dream of judgment. It's a proclamation of judgment. The judgment for that forest falls upon that tree because the tree is the center of life for the forest. So if the forest does something wrong, the tree gets punished for it. We all know, first children in the room, you know? Your siblings do something wrong. Who's gonna get in trouble? You are. Your younger brother, your younger sister, they wall out. Who's gonna get in trouble? You are. You know, your cousin acts out, but you were upstairs and that person was downstairs and y'all were in the same house. Who gets in trouble? You do. So this is what's happening here. The judgment, <laughs> I'm so sorry, first children. I'm so sorry if I triggered you. Uh, but the, <laughs> I'm so sorry. Did not mean to do that. It was an illustration. So the, the judgment falls upon King Neb. And what, what happens? He gets turned into a beast. His reason gets taken from him. Seven times on the earth. That means seven years. But this is a conditional message. What is a conditional? Most of y'all have done at least geometric proofs. What is a conditional? Yo, if then, if this, come on, guys. Guys. Anyway, it's fine, it's fine. We're good, we're chilling. So if it's good, it's good. Now you know, now you know what a conditional is. Y'all, like unconditional love, the opposite of that, unconditional love of God is conditional. It's an if-then statement. So if A, then B, if I jump up and down, my skirt will fly up. If I turn off the lights, then we sit in darkness. If I turn off that speaker, then the whole system will pop. You know, <laughs> if then, so if A, then B. And so this dream is a conditional. If you put down your pride, then you'll be all right. If you stay in your pride, then this will happen. And it is a warning not because God just likes to play around and fool around with people, but it is a warning to a man who has become his God. If you roller skate without any knee pads on and you don't know how to roller skate, then you will fall. And sometimes when it comes to our kingdom of one, a lot of us in this room, me, I have lived my life doing what I want. And one of the hardest things about being a Christian and being an adult, especially a young adult, y'all, I'm only 25. I haven't turned 26 yet, right? One of the most difficult things about being 
a young Christian is that, you know, in our 20s, we just want to do what we want to. We just want to play. You know, I love to play, okay? And sometimes you just want to, you just want to wild out, right? But, and so in that sense, we are not, we are not all too different from Neb. The reason why I want to bring this up, I bring this up in a context of youth, but it also is the case as you get older. As you get older, the back of your neck only gets stiffer, y'all. As we get older, the more I get older, the more I don't want to listen to nobody else, right? And we just continue to grow in our kingdom of one. The wiser we get, the bigger our brains get, and the bigger our head gets. And Nebuchadnezzar had done so much, he had accomplished so much with his life that his head was bigger than a stinking body. And he wasn't going to listen to nobody. And you know what? He didn't have to. He didn't have to consider other people. He didn't have to do any of that. And so to a man who was in full control over an entire area, multiple plundered nations, to only give attention to his gut and the people that he wanted to listen to, the advice he wanted to hear, God was giving a warning. Hey, I'm right here. This is about to happen to you, but it don't gotta if you will just humble yourself. Well, 12 months later, 12 months later, okay? And this is, I want y'all to remember, this is told in the perspective of Neb. So 12, 12 months later, King Neb, he's chilling on his rooftop. Back then, Babylonian rooftops were flat, and so people lived and enjoyed life on their rooftops, much like life today. And Neb was on his rooftop. And he's looking, and it's the rooftop, because, you know, it's his palace. It's like the highest point of the whole freaking empire. And so he's looking out. It's all these lights, just houses for miles, civilization for miles and miles as far as his eye can see. He goes, Wow, look at what I've accomplished. Wow, look at all that I have hustled to bring together. Amazing, right? Now this high point, often in the Old Testament, the imagery of the highest point, the highest mountain is an allusion to idolatry. And Babylon is a polytheistic empire, which means there are idols for miles and miles and miles. Miles and miles and miles, right? But we don't see an idol here, because he is his own idol. And I know you might snicker at the idea of King Neb doing this, but have y'all ever looked at something you've made and like, damn, I did that. You know what I mean? Sometimes I look at my seminary and degree and I'm like, damn, I did that. I didn't, I didn't. But you know, like sometimes we look at our degrees, our accomplishments, our jobs. If we are creative, sometimes we look at what we've made. Damn, I did that, right? Sometimes we are leaders of organizations. And we look at what we've accomplished. We're like, damn, I did that. Sometimes we are servants in the body. And we successfully pull off an event. And we look around and we say, damn, I did that. There are so many situations. So many situations. A job that you successfully landed, putting food on the table for your family, good grades, the pleasure of knowing that you have satisfied the people you love, being diligent, getting ahead of others, being a highly motivated, highly competent, diligent, and driven individual. All of these things are things that society genuinely tells you, hey, that's a great thing. 
and it's not a bad thing. But King Nebuchadnezzar looks at what he's done because he hustled, he grinded. When others were fooling around, he was putting pen to paper. He was on that flow. He was getting the bread, right? And he busted his butt and made an empire. He looked at himself and he said, look at that. I did it. I made it. And that's when judgment <laughs> falls upon his head. The Lord says, I, I don't want to hear I won't, I won't butcher that. While the words were in, still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. and you, are, you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. A.K.A. man's did not listen. And what the Lord had said, because God is incredibly consistent, what the Lord had said happened. So the king of this empire literally becomes crazy. He goes, this is not a, like, even in historic, historical records, there's a time period where King Nebuchadnezzar randomly, literally acts like an animal. Won't go into the house, acts like an animal, literally eats pasture. Like he literally becomes like an animal. And that's written in, that's a, this is not like a, this is not a drill. This is not like lofty language. This is not poetry. This is historic, like a historical record of what happens to him. Seven times. The number seven in scripture indicates completion. Seven years. A whole season. The king of Babylon, the ruler, the dictator, the guy in charge of everything. This guy is way more powerful than presidents. There is no equivalent of a ruler like him in our contemporary society today. Okay? So basically the guy that like literally dominated an entire hemisphere starts acting like an ox for seven years. Sounds a little crazy, but it, and this is where mental health comes into play. So this is seen to be his insanity, and it's actually talked about, um, you know, uh, I don't want to, like, stigmatize mental health. I'm not saying that mental health is to be, like, abused. Please. Mental health is normalized. It should be normalized. Everybody struggles with it. I struggle with it. I have mental health problems. And so that's not what I'm talking about here. But this is something that happens to King Neb for seven years. Because a man who thinks he is like a god must become a beast in order to learn that he is only human. I'm gonna say that one more time. A man who thinks he is like a god must become a beast to learn that he is only a human being. At the appropriate time, he raises his eyes to heaven and his sanity is restored. And he praises God. You might wonder, why would you praise God? If this is what God has done to you, why would you praise God? Number one, it's safe to say that God has protected him. You know what happens to a human being if he acts like an animal? Actual animals can trample him. You know what happens to human beings? We are pretty, like, for all that we are sentient and brilliant about, right, in comparison to the animal kingdom, our bodies are pretty weak. And yet Nebuchadnezzar went to be like an animal and God preserved him. Yes, God made a really hard lesson out of him. But God preserved him and he carried him. 
He also protected the people of Israel during this time. And he, at the end of his seven years of becoming a beast, what does Neb do? He worships God. He looks to heaven and he says, God, you're right. I'm only human. I thought I was the best. I thought everyone's world should revolve around me. I thought I was the most powerful being in the universe. But here I confess that you are. And that by acting like I was you, I committed a grave sin. And yet, you forgave me and you let that lift from me. Scripture says Nebuchadnezzar only grew in power after these seven years. It's a time of discipline and it's a time of testing but Nebuchadnezzar only grew. Why does a passage like this exist in scripture? Why? How many of y'all are uncomfortable at the idea of that happening to you? Imagine. But can you say that you are different from Neb? You don't have to answer me. Ask yourself honestly. In the job that you're choosing, the direction that you want to go, the college that you're choosing, the way you help your family, even what you decide to do with the next six hours of your day, How many of you consider anything above your opinion? I'm not saying that your opinion is whack. No, I care about your opinion, okay? If you guys have an opinion about something, please come talk to me. I care about what you guys have to say. I care about your lives and your autonomy, and so does God. But I think it is safe to say for all of us, that it is a struggle to let God into the decision-making processes of our lives. Now, in government, when you are in leadership, what is the distinctive point of being a leader? What is the direct privilege of being a leader? What distinguishes a leader from the rest of that organization or that institution? The leader is the one to make decisions. And the responsibility of that decision falls on the person who made it. That's what it means to be a leader. It's also cooler because many of us like to make decisions. Why does everyone strive to be a leader? If the only distinguishing factor of a leader, other than having more things to own, is the fact that you make decisions. It's because all of us like making our own decisions. So, based off of that logic, it is safe, would you not say it is safe to say that the primary decision maker of your life is yourself? Is there a person here that can say that the primary decision maker of their life is God? And so then, are we so different from them? I love this church. I love y'all. Y'all are great kids, great people. Not everybody is a kid anymore. We are adults here. I'm so sorry, I'll never say that again. This is a wonderful community filled with brothers and sisters that I love and cherish. That being said, me included, y'all, we are no different than this guy. And a man who thinks he is like a god must become a beast to learn that he is only human. We often wonder, God, why would you do this to me? Why would you do this to me? 
I didn't get the job I wanted. I didn't get the college career I wanted. This pandemic didn't pan out for me in the way that I thought it would. God, why would you do that? And for some of us, maybe it has. And we're like, oh my God, I got the job I wanted. Oh my God, I got, I got into the college that I wanted to go to. This teaches us a lesson on humility. When Nebuchadnezzar comes out of this, is he saying, I am the lowliest of the low. I am like scum of the earth. Everybody is above me. I will serve everyone for as long as I live. No, that's not humility. When somebody affirms you and your gifts, Amy, you are an excellent worship leader and an excellent servant. You are doing a wonderful job with the rise and you're like, Sorry, Amy. You should take it. Uh, but that's also not humility. <laughs> so receive it. I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to call you out like that. So humility is not to downgrade yourself. Humility is a reality check that God is greater than you. I'm going to say that one more time. Humility is not... Modesty. Modesty is outward. Humility is inward. Being nice doesn't make you kind. Being loving doesn't mean you love a person. Modesty does not equal humility. Humility is a reality check that God is greater than you. And that's why, even though we're modest, even though we've got a good head on our shoulders, if we don't allow God to actually mean anything substantial in the way that we live. We might not be living in humility. God wasn't punishing Neb for being like the worst human being in the world. God wasn't doing, God was giving Neb the ultimate reality check. Imagine being ruled, an entire empire being ruled under a person who thought he was the best. That leadership suffers. That empire suffers. All those people suffer. Put it another way. If we are not humble and we become leaders, everyone who's under us, they suffer. A leader without, a hum without humility is not a good leader. But I am redefining humility right now for you. Not as a modest living or a modest... That, wait, but that also qualifies, that's not just a church leadership thing. Even in the home, whether you are a single mom or a family of two or a single dad, whatever you may be, if you as even the leader of your household is not humble, and what is humility? The reality check that God is greater than you and allow yourself to be held accountable to that, you will be a bad leader. Your kids might grow up well, but they might not know that God is greater than them. I'm not saying all of us are bad leaders, because we all struggle with this. But I'm saying we have to be wrestling with this. We really care about the people that are under us as well. We have got to be wrestling with these things. What does humility entail for you? We feel sometimes like we can have some credit. I honor all that you do. Everything that every single person in this room has done to be at the point that they are, I honor you. All those years searching for a job, all those years making ends meet, all those years busting your butt just so that you can be, make it better for the generations under you. All that you have done as young adults trying to make it in a world that does not work in your favor. I honor you. I honor all the work that you've done. But if you don't know how to acknowledge that God was at the center of what you were doing, if you don't know how to acknowledge the physical reality that God actually was the one helping you, that if God shuts all your doors, 
You can't even get up from your seat? You know? You are all, whether you are 11 or 50, we are all be human beings that can think for ourselves. On the other end, when you feel like you've protected everything just for everything to fall, when you feel like you're in a situation beyond your control, just as much as you might have to accept that God was with you, that God was the one that opened every single door for you to have the life that you have right now, that even now, God is the one at work. Just as much as that humility, that dose of humble pie must exist for you, on the other end of that, when you feel like you've worked your butt off and nothing is going your way, when you feel like you're in a situation beyond your control, you can lean on the fact that God is not done with you. But you cannot just take the encouragement without taking the reality. Do we live under the sovereignty of God? I know this pandemic, God might not have felt so real. The reality is that whether or not you feel like God is real, God is real. I do not need to feel like Tim Yim exists for Tim to wake up in the morning and breathe. If Tim doesn't exist in my brain, he ceases to be as a human being. No. Because his life doesn't revolve around mine. And he has his own life. Just because you might not think that God is real, just because you might not think that God is greater and God is sovereign, that does not take away from the existence of God. So that is the reality. And on the other side of that piece of humble pie, when you've protected everything just for everything to fall, when you are in a situation beyond your control, you lean on a God that is greater than you, that is wiser than you, that is nicer, kinder, more loving, has lo loved, is loved. A God that is forgiving and merciful even when you cannot. A God that has always got your back. A God that never leaves you alone even when you feel like you're alone. A God that does not give up on you. A God that does not see you as a failure. A God that does not judge you based off of your mistakes and what you've done. Every single person in this room here, regardless of what your life looks like, we are all loved by God the same exact way. And so if you want that good piece of providence, you've also got to take the conviction. Another thing to consider is redemptive shame. Jane, I thought we always sing in Sunday service that there is no shame when we are with God. No more shame. No more this, no more that, no more unforgiveness. And I, I want to make it distinct from false shame, from a false sense of self as you're, you're like, I'm not saying, okay, here. Shame exists in the church in a healthy way. It can exist in our processes in a healthy way. But shame is not supposed to come out of the sense that you're bad. Or a false sense of success and a false sense of failure. I failed. I'm under so much shame. I've made this mistake. I've struggled with this addiction. I've done this and I've gone too far with somebody. And there, now, therefore, I'm in so much shame. That's, that's false shame, because that shame is built up on lies. But there is something called redemptive shame, and that is true shame is a shame that, it, that is as a result of our rebellion and sin before God. What that means is shame is not a state of being. Shame is a situational feeling when God exposes you. Like, let's say you were looking on your computer something you were not supposed to look on the computer, and you did not hear your parent coming into the room, 
And your parent goes, what are you doing? And goes, ah, by what's on your screen? What fills you? Shame. <laughs> and that's a, it's a feeling of another person seeing, even if it's your parent, even if it's somebody that will love you no matter what. Me and my mom, there is no secrets. Actually, me and my whole family. <laughs> there are no secrets. I do not hide anything. Um, my little sister always complains that there is no sense of privacy because we live together now. She's like, Dad, you never, you never leave my room locked. Because I just, we actually, maybe I shouldn't talk about that with you. But like, yeah, so <laughs> like, yes, even with people that you love, you might not have a lot of secrets, right? But sometimes, even if it's God, you might have done something or not have accomplished something. Maybe if it's even about your faith. God, I'm ashamed. I feel like I should be more faithful. God, I'm ashamed. I feel like as a Christian, I should be looking like this and praying like this and praising like this, but I'm having a hard time doing that. God, I'm Christian, but I have a hard time remembering you. And there's a feeling that comes over you. When you know that God that sees everything sees you, sees all of your thoughts, your great ones, your not so great ones, and your absolutely terrible ones. And sometimes that embarrassment, that feeling of shame, leads us to run in the opposite direction away. Sometimes we project our shame onto other people saying, You're, you judge me. You're judging me from what I did. You're judging me from what I said. You have a particular view of me, and this person ain't even saying nothing. It's like, oh, but you're judging me based off of what I've done. And sometimes we have shame that projects into perceived judgment. And we have all these different ways of coping with this high amount of stress in the form of shame. Hey, there is such a thing where you can be sorry for what you've done. In the church, to Hananim, to our God who sees us and loves us, there are moments where you might be in shame. But number one, that does not play on your identity. That's not number one. That's number one, two, and three. That does not play on your identity. You know why? Scripture says that we have God that endured shame on our behalf. When you feel that feeling of, I've been prideful. I've not done what I should be doing as a Christian. And you feel that shame like through you and make you resistant to God. Remember that that exact feeling is what Christ put on himself on the cross. He was naked, suffocating, bleeding out. And he endured that exact feeling that you're feeling, that you felt yesterday, that you're going to feel next week. That's what he took on the cross. Some of us might be willing to take that and allow that to make a difference in our heart. Allow ourselves to dare to wonder, hey, maybe I should let God into my decisions. Hey, maybe this guy is a good enough person, is a trustworthy enough individual that I should base my actions and the things that I do with my life based off of what he says. And some of us may not be willing to do that. A lot of that is dependent on shame. Because when shame gets put into our identity, it becomes a lie that gives birth to apathy. And so some of us live apathetically because shame has given birth to a lie. I want to make a distinction here. There is nothing to be ashamed of in front of me, in front of anybody. There is nothing that you have done that you should be ashamed of. Nothing that you have said that you should be ashamed of. Maybe relationships that you might need to mend with God and with the people that love you and you love. 
but no shame. Not because that feeling isn't a true feeling, but because Christ took that exact feeling on the cross. For Christ to not just have taken your sin, but also your shame, that must mean something, no? That's how dangerous that thing actually is. Nebuchadnezzar could have been ashamed and run off. He could have been like, all right, I don't want to be king anymore, and I don't want to talk to God anymore. And, you know, a lot of us might have made that decision ourselves. I don't know what you have been doing this pandemic. I don't know whether or not you have been living with shame and it has burst to apathy, partially because you're ashamed of what you, or maybe like you're just sorry for what you did and the distance between you and God is too great. Or maybe it's also because you just want to do what you want to. Either way, those are both characteristics that Nebuchadnezzar exhibits here. Many of us in this room might be Nebuchadnezzar's in our own right. So here's today's word for you. This is a scary word, obviously, like, this guy becomes a beast for seven years, and I am not saying that that is going to happen to y'all. We're not going to start crawling and eating that grass out there. That's not what I'm saying, okay? I'm not saying that that's what we're going to be. But take the warning and the reality check seriously. Humility is the reality check that God is greater than we are. Humility is the reality that we as humans, we are limited to this. And God is greater that much more. And it took a man who thinks he's like God to become a beast. It took for him to become like a beast. Just for him to realize that he is only what? Human. For whatever reason, this pandemic should have taught us that we don't have control over anything and that all the more reason, for all the more reason we should come before God. But for whatever reason, what we've taken away is our uncontrollable need for control all the more. Every single hour, if things don't go our way, it might be harder for us. But our mourning turns into dancing when we are confronted with the gospel. And our shame turns to freedom when we are confronted with the fact that that very feeling that you're feeling is what Christ died for and you have nothing to be ashamed of. So come into your reality. This is your word. For those of us, I don't know what kind of lives you guys are living and I don't know what feeling you are feeling right now. But let that be your reality check. God is real. He is greater than all of us. And we ought not to live like he doesn't exist. And if you feel like you're too far, it's a legitimate feeling, but that's not your identity. That's exactly what Christ paid for. Not just your sin, but your shame. I'll end with this. Jesus is the humble king. Where King Nebuchadnezzar was strong and arrogant, where King Nebuchadnezzar was quick to turn blame on other people, even as he was primary decision maker, where King Nebuchadnezzar was only human, God is both human and man. Unlike this example of an absolute king, Jesus showed kingship by washing your feet. Jesus, as the true and perfect king, sees you wherever you guys are right now, whatever you guys have been doing, He sees you, and he loves you, and he embraces you. He bends over backwards for you to know that you are loved. Even when you're unwilling to look at him, 
He takes care of you. He sets up your next steps. He does not leave you alone. He does not take you far away. What does that mean for your life? Will you walk away from your king to be your own? When Jesus is in the proper place in our lives, everything else also falls into place. And the people we love also benefit from it. Can we take this time to pray? Where are you at? Where are you at in your walk? Where are you at in your walk? Where do you stand? What rules your life? The people you love? Your values and your virtues? All good things. All wonderful, wonderful things. They might not be God. Maybe it's your comfort level. Just what you want to do. At this time, can we just come clean before our just come clean and allow him to speak into your shame. Allow him to speak into where you are most small. Allow him to speak into the places your life that are most painful. As we are confronted with the reality that God is greater, whether or not we perceive it, can we just be honest for those of us who are knocking on the door to ask of God I don't know what it's like to live aligned to you but I want to try God I don't know if you're there but I want to get to know you person to person For some of us who might have come too far away. Maybe now might be the time to reconnect with a God that you can approach completely. Maybe for some of us who don't want to approach God, we can ask for a greater desire to approach Him. Ask for clarity. For some of us who are bitter, who are going through a tough time and are having a hard time coming before the Lord because of our tough time, let's come to Jesus just as we are and just have an honest conversation with a God that gives to you exactly what you need. Would you just open your heart to talking to him? Take this time to pray. Let's pray.
Wherever you're listening, we hope you are blessed by this week's message. For more information, check out our website at mbkmc.com. Thank you.